us to that this morning. Galatians 5, 1-12. Listen to how beautiful the first verse of this chapter sounds. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Christ has freed us so that we would live freely, therefore defend your freedom. Don't let yourself fall back into slavery. Don't be deceived. Don't be tricked back into bondage. Earlier in this letter, Paul talks about two different kinds of bondage. So imagine that you're driving down a road, and right down the center of that road is called freedom, and there are ditches on both sides of the road. There's freedom, and there's two kind of opposite forms of slavery. Legalism is the ditch on one side of the road. Legalism enslaves because you become a slave to a list of rules and regulations. You can be enslaved to the idea that you have to be good enough to please God and earn his favor. The ditch on that side of the road is legalism. But you can jump out of that ditch and cruise all the way across the road and fall into an error on the other side. You can become a slave to your own desires and passions. We all have desires and passions and drives, and that's not all bad, but we have to control them. If you're not careful, they can begin to control you. If you don't rule over your body, your passions and desires can rule over you. You can become enslaved on that side of the road to your own desires. Christ has pulled you out of the ditch. He's set you free. And Paul is saying, stand firm, therefore, and don't fall into the ditch on the other side of the road. He says, Christians have been granted freedom. And it's the will of God that they now live in that freedom. So it says, Christ has set you free. Notice that it doesn't say, break off your chains. It doesn't say, free yourself. Freedom has been given to us. The command is to now live in that new reality. Imagine that a baby is born, immediately kidnapped or something, taken from its family, and put into slavery. And for that next 30, 40 years, that young man grows up in slavery. It's all he knows. And at some point in his life, he's rescued out of that slavery, and he finds out that he's actually the child of the king. And he now lives in a palace, and there are servants around him. And that new lifestyle might not feel completely natural to him. He might not feel at home in this new position that there are people serving him now. And in some strange way, he might even prefer some sort of that lifestyle that he had before. That's not a bad picture of what's happened to the Christian. We've been put into this new position. We're children of the king. And we're called to not go back to that slavery that we were in before. Paul starts this chapter by saying to the churches in Galatia, you really are free, so live that way. We're jumping into chapter 5, so let's take just a minute to back up and notice some things in the first four chapters. Paul's travels were interrupted because of some sickness 
He didn't plan on staying in Galatia, but because of his sickness, he's forced to stay in Galatia for a while. While he's there, he tells people of Christ, some people are saved, and some local churches are started, probably four. And while he left, some other men come to those four local churches in Galatia, and they claim to be Christian teachers. And they're saying some things to those churches in Galatia like, yeah, salvation is only through Jesus Christ. You must trust in Christ for salvation. But didn't Paul mention to you other revelations that God has given to us? In order for you to really be a complete child of God, you have to add a couple things to that faith of yours. You probably should think about being circumcised. Maybe it's best that you avoid bacon. Do you think it's such a good idea that you cut your lawn on the Sabbath? These new teachers encourage some form of faith in Christ, but they're able to twist the gospel not through subtraction, but through addition. You must trust in Christ, and maybe it's a good idea to add a couple things to that. These new new teachers claim that Paul wasn't one of the true original apostles, and that Paul's gospel isn't actually in complete agreement with the gospel preached by those true apostles. And so that's the reason that Paul is writing this letter to those churches in Galatia. He, in the first two chapters, he defends himself. He answers the accusations that he's not a true apostle. He answers the accusation that he is preaching a different gospel than Peter, James, and John, who are back in Israel. And then in chapters 3 and 4, he defines the gospel. The gospel is good news. The good news of what God the Father has done through Jesus in order for sinners to be justified and in that way, united to God himself. The gospel is not something we do. It's not advice. It's not a command. In chapter 3, Paul says that he displayed the gospel before the eyes of the Galatians. So whatever this gospel is, it's something that can be displayed to them, like a painting painted on canvas and held up before them. It's the picture of innocent Jesus of Nazareth hanging on a cross as a substitute for the penalty that we deserve. Through the cross, our sin problem is solved, and guilty sinners can be united to a holy God. When God created the world and put man in the perfect garden that he prepared, there was perfect harmony between God and man, peace between creator and the man he created, shalom. But man rebelled, broke the law of God, went his own way, and for that reason, God sent man out of the garden and away from his presence. Because of sin, man is now separated from the creator of life and love. It's impossible for us today to over-exaggerate the size of this problem. Mankind was created to have fellowship with God. Without God, we can never know peace, joy, or love. We'll never find satisfaction. We'll never be truly fulfilled. We can try to find satisfaction and fulfillment in many other ways, through money, fame, family, marriage, children, 
position, popularity. But when a person makes any of those things the goal in their life, and let's say they achieve that goal, they'll be disappointed to find out that it's not everything they thought it would be. Because true satisfaction will only ever be found in a relationship with our Creator. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says it this way, God made us, invented us, like a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol, and it wouldn't run properly on anything else. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn, and the food our spirits are designed to feed on. There is no other. And that is why it's just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it's simply not there. Man, apart from God, will never know true joy. And the thing that's keeping us from God is sin. Our sin problem must be solved so that we can be united to our Creator. Who can solve our sin problem? Who can wash us and make us clean? Jesus Christ. Jesus has done everything necessary, not only for moral people, but for the most immoral person to be justified. The wall of sin that has separated us from God has been destroyed by Jesus Christ. The good news is this. Through Christ, sinful man can be united to God. This is what Paul lays out in chapters 3 and 4, and that brings us to chapter 5. Let's read verses 1 through 12. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You're severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettled you would emasculate themselves. In this passage, Paul is using circumcision as an example to help us understand how the gospel works. It might be fair to say it in this way, that in chapters 3 and 4, Paul's explaining how the gospel works in theory, 
And now at the beginning of chapter 5, he's showing how that theory works out in everyday life decisions. He's answering one specific question that the Galatians and many other first century Christians were asking, should I get circumcised or not? In verse 2, Paul teaches that we must trust Christ and Christ alone. Christians are called to put all their eggs in one basket. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I, Ben Lair, not completely trustworthy, uh, when we are in the States and I have this responsibility to drive to these various churches that we have to visit in the States, I often use GPS, but I really enjoy kind of following my nose and finding that church. I know where they all are. Like the church in Wheatland, it's four or five miles north of town on the west side of the road. When you drive, you see it from the highway. You take the next exit and drive back to it. I can find them all. And every once in a while, as I'm driving to a church, I see someone in the passenger seat or the back seat pull out GPS on their phone and just check to see if we're headed in the right direction. That kind of irks me. I I know where we're going. You don't have to check the GPS. I've got it. But the truth is, I've been completely lost a couple times. And without GPS, we might have been in trouble. However, we can completely rely on Christ. Jesus Christ is 100% trustworthy. His work is sufficient to save the worst of sinners, to save you. Christianity is not for good moral people. Christianity is for sinners. Come to Christ today. Anyone can be forgiven. There's one condition. Trust Christ. It's this simple. Trust your logic, your good works, your religion, or your anything, and you'll be damned. Trust in Christ, and you'll be saved. There is a Savior, and He's not you. It's fair for my kids to think, I trust Dad, but it's good that we have GPS as well. But that's what the Galatians are doing with circumcision. They're thinking, Jesus will probably save us, but just to be sure, I maybe should get circumcised as well. That way for sure I'll be saved. We trust in Jesus, but we're going to get circumcised just in case. And Paul writes, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. By doing that, you show that you're not trusting Christ, the one necessary thing. Adding something to the gospel is the same as denying the gospel. It results in eternal damnation. That's how serious Paul's words are. Look at verse 4. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. And the end of verse 4, you've fallen away from grace. Can we find any stronger words in the whole Bible? There is only one way of salvation. 
Praise God he's made a way. Jesus has done all the work to save you. You and I are called to do this. Trust him. Rest. Fall on him. Believe that his arms can carry you. In general, I'm the sort of person that likes to have a backup plan. Uh, When I'm in Poland and I travel to other churches or conferences, most often I travel by train. And as I pull up the train schedule for the day, and I see what train is going to get me to the conference, you know, an hour and a half before the conference starts, I like to notice which train might work if something happens to plan A. I like to know that there is a backup plan in case I miss that first train or something goes wrong with that first train. Uh, backup plan will still get me there more or less the time the conference starts. Circumcision is their backup plan. It reveals their lack of trust. They're not ready to put all their eggs in one basket. Let's look again at verse 3. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. It's commonly accepted that the Old Testament law is made up of 613 commands. Certainly, some of them carry more weight than others. Some are repeated many, many times. Others might be only written down once. However, every single one of them is required by God. Everyone who's ever read the law of God and then sincerely tried to live according to that law quite quickly becomes aware that he's not able to do it. However, God in his mercy toward us sent his son into the world to do what we would never be able to do. Jesus lived for 33 years in complete and total obedience to his father. He avoided every sin that man should avoid. He did every good deed that man should do. Jesus lived this life of obedience that you and I cannot live And he did it for you. So there are, in theory, two ways in which a man can be righteous before God. Number one, completely live an obedient life according to the whole law of God. Or number two, trust that Jesus did that for us and can offer his righteousness to us. Circumcision. Deciding to obey one of those 613 laws does nothing for you. Not even if that's one of the really important ones. If you're going to go that route, you've got to go all the way. You've got to obey all the commands. Have you ever seen a hamster on one of those little wheels? That's the situation we'd be in. A marathon is really long. 26 miles and 400 yards. That's about 26 miles longer than I can run. It's really, really long, but it can be measured. It has a finish line. A hamster on one of those wheels must run and run and run and run, and there's no finish line in sight. And that's the picture of us trying to save ourselves through our obedience. If you head down that road, you're the hamster. Day and night, 
night and day, from birth till death, you must be perfectly obedient in every way without exception. And Paul says to them, why are you considering circumcision? What does that one thing do for you? There's 613 laws. You head down that road. You go ahead and head down that road and do the first one. You've got to do them all. Paul uses a similar argument in the very last verse, verse 12, except his words are even more sharp, pretty snarky and sarcastic. He says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. So his argument is something like this. Why snip off just an inch of skin? If an inch is good, maybe three is better. Maybe six is even better. What's the sense in doing things halfway? If you're going to save yourself through good works, you've got to be extreme. Go for it. You've got to be totally committed. The good news of Jesus Christ says, get off the hamster wheel. You can never do it. Stop trying to save yourself. Believe in Him. Trust Him. Rest in His arms. As a contrast, Paul gives us the alternative in verse 5. This is a beautiful verse. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Listen to that again. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. What do we do in verse 5? What's the verb? We wait. Get off the hamster wheel. Stop trying to do enough. And wait. Take a load off. Wait for the hope of righteousness. The righteousness of Christ has already been given to us, but we have to wait for what that righteousness is leading us to. It's like we've been given the down payment as a guarantee, and now we wait for the entire fulfillment of the promise. The whole Bible and all of the history of mankind can be summarized with just four words. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. There's a paradise at the beginning of the story and a paradise at the end of the story. And we who are already justified, but we still live in this sin-cursed world, we're caught in a kind of already but not yet situation. We've already been justified, but we're not yet in paradise. And this phrase, hope of righteousness, helps us to see our situation. We've already been given the righteousness of Christ, His clean robes. And for the time being, we live in this world, which is quite full of sickness and death and sin and tears. And yet our destination is already established. Our hope is sure. Instead of resting in this sure hope, the Galatians are trying to cover all their bases. If salvation is through Christ, we've already checked that box. If it's through baptism, that box has already been checked. If it might be through circumcision, we better schedule the procedure. And maybe we better think about which holidays we celebrate and which foods we should be eating. And Paul says, go ahead. But if you start playing that game, 
then Christ does you no good. This simple truth, the truth that Paul is teaching here, is contrary to our intuition. It goes against almost all our experience in this world. Experience in this world teaches us that nothing worth having is free. In all honesty, when someone offers me something for free, I'm not real quick to accept it. Because I don't believe it's free. I think that there's some fine print, some trick, some way this is going to come back to bite me. Life experience and our intuition tell us that we've got to pull our own weight. We've got to pay our own way. A man has to pull himself up by his bootstraps. Let's look quickly at verse 11 as we finish up. Jesus, on more than one occasion, claimed that all of the Bible is about him. Central to the message of the Bible is Jesus of Nazareth and the gospel. And central to the gospel is the cross. Paul is in a habit of using the phrase, the cross of Christ, as a synonym for the whole gospel, or even just using the word cross to refer to the whole gospel. And that's what he does in verse 11. He says, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Paul says, I am being persecuted, and it's certainly not because I'm preaching a salvation through works. It's because I'm preaching the gospel. And he uses the phrase that he's preaching the offense of the gospel. The word offense could be translated scandal. Paul was being criticized, lied about, persecuted because of the scandal of the gospel. The scandal of the cross. Paul knows that the cross is scandalous. He doesn't deny that it's scandalous. And although it's scandalous, it must be taught, it must be preached, it must be believed, because it is the only way to salvation. Let me mention three ways that the cross of Christ is scandalous to our generation in the 21st century. I read these three things somewhere. They're not original with me, but I don't remember where. Number one, the cross of Christ attacks my gentle description of my own sin. My little sins aren't that bad. I'm really a good person who from time to time makes a mistake, steps over the line a little. Certainly the things that I've done wrong in my life don't deserve a bloody, torturous, slow death on the cross. Who does God think that He is to say that Christ's death on the cross is necessary to make up for my little mess-ups, foibles? The cross is a scandal to our generation because it attacks our definition of our sin. Number two, it attacks our proud notions of, of our ability to please God. We're prone to think, I give a significant amount of money to the church and to charities. I not only attend church, I'm a church member. I try to help my neighbor. I support a child in Africa. 
I've done enough to please God, or at least I've done just about enough. But the cross of Christ injures my self-esteem. All of my good works fall so far short of the mark that Jesus had to suffer and die so that a good person like me could be reconciled to God? The cross not only injures our self-esteem, it obliterates it. And thirdly, the cross attacks my pleasant expectations for life in this world. If you're anything like me, you spend time daydreaming of the day when you'll have not so many responsibilities, not so many bills, not so many needy people around you, not so many conflicts, not so many sermons to write. You dream of a cabin in the woods, a quiet house to yourself with pizza and college football on the TV. We long for a quiet, comfortable life. And Jesus Christ is not only our Savior, but He's our Lord and Master. And we're called to follow Him. We watch Him and we learn from Him. And we're called to live like Him. And he didn't come to this earth and live longing or looking for a life of comfort or a long life or peace and quiet. He came in obedience to the Father, to glorify the Father through giving up his life, a ransom for many. He was born in order to die, to give up his life. No one took his life from it. He willingly gave it up. So the cross of Christ is scandalous to our generation because it calls us to give up our lives. It attacks our expectations for a quiet, comfortable, pleasant life in this world. Although the cross of Christ is scandalous, was in the first century, is in the 21st century, we must talk about it. We must meditate on it. We must preach it. We must trust in it. Because it is the only way of salvation. Amen.